different. You found part two of the three-part mini-series on how to break behavior patterns inside the bigger topic of belonging that we're discussing this season on the Home of Having podcast. Welcome. After having talked last week about how you can break a negative pattern within you so you know how to change the way you treat yourself, it is time today to talk about how can we break behavior patterns in our relationships. Now, if we need to break a pattern, we're obviously talking about a negative one. We need to look at the relationships that influenced us the most profound, and those are the ones between parents and kids. And in order to be a better parent to your own children, you need to revisit what it was like to be a child yourself. You need to know now as an adult, not just feel like a child about your past. Today, I'm inviting you to listen to my guest, Kira Wackett, who is a therapist, an educator, and a public speaker, and who has made excavating shame stories one of her specialties. If you have ever heard a talk or read a book by Brittany Brown and thought, oh, that is what I needed to hear, hello, this episode is for you, because Kira has studied Brittany's work and can add to it with her own insights from her work with her clients. Let me give you some of the questions Kira's answering for us on this episode. Is there something like a shame-free life? Are all shame experiences negative? How do we recognize that we're acting out of shame or that we're being in shame right now? What is shame resilience? What is the connection between shame, pride, and acting prideful? How do I break out of my shame? And how do I connect to my roots if they are shame-loaded? You might have seen this is an extra long episode, but here's my tip for you. Instead of sinking down in front of the TV tonight, grab your headphones, grab a piece of paper, fold it in half, and write down on the left side the nuggets of wisdom Kira is dropping because she's dropping every few minutes something very wise. And then, my friend, use the right side of that sheet to write down the notes on how and why this is triggering or applying to you and your life. And stick to the end, because Kira is offering every one of you a six-week free membership to her library of videos and trainings when it comes to raising through and despite of adversity. Believe me, after you've listened to this entire episode, you'll be hooked. You will want to have more. So I can't wait to get started. Enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome to the Home of Having podcast, my friend. This is the place to learn how to create a home away from home. I am Nick, I am an interior designer, but also a CRL expat. And this season, I'm on the quest to find out what belonging means. Why? Well, because psychologists claim belonging is what defines the value of our life, and it helps us cope with life when life gets rough. And you don't need to be an expat to know life doesn't get any rougher than when we feel lonely. So I'm inviting you to hear and learn from inspiring people as they share their story and their knowledge on belonging. And then you can make a decision on what a home worth having really means to you. Welcome 
to this week's episode. Welcome, Kira. I'm so excited to have you here. This is going to be a very interesting conversation because I promised myself that I will be open and honest and vulnerable if it comes to that. So we'll see if I get triggered. Welcome to the Homework Having Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. And as I announced to my listeners in the intro, our talk today is about shame and shame research. And that is a topic that makes a lot of people nervous. And in order to make it a little bit more easy to step into, I think we can just start naming Brini Brown because she's the most famous shame researcher that I know. And I think most people know. So do you relate to her work? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Brene Brown was really becoming a light that people were seeing in the world. She was doing TED Talks and kind of starting to speak a lot more on the work that she had been doing for years. And so the topic of shame was becoming more of a conversation simultaneous to me being in graduate school and completing my therapy degree. And so I was learning a lot of these pieces through lenses of therapeutic approaches and how you process this as a therapist. And then when Brene Brown was talking about this kind of in this general way and trying to make it more approachable to people at large, there was such a connection I felt to that, especially as someone who I love working as a therapist, but I also really, I want to have the conversations with the general population. I want to be doing this work. So she's She's very much someone that started that and kind of modeled that. And I've been able to pick up some of what she's done and make it my own and add in my own pieces as well. Cool. So we're here on the Home Worth Having podcast because this season I'm investigating all the layers and all the facets of belonging. So when we talk about belonging, we also need to talk about when we do not belong. And one of the biggest hurdles that is so hard to overcome is the topic of shame. So there's this notion of where there's shame, there can't be belonging. And if we talk as parents or even just as friends, shaming is not cool and we try to avoid it. But is there something like a life without shame? Yeah, I think that that's something that oftentimes whenever there's anything that's uncomfortable or feels like we don't want it, we want to figure out how to get rid of it. And the reality is that shame is an emotion. It's a feeling. And just like happiness or sadness, we are going to experience it. I think the difference, though, is rather than us thinking about how do we live a life without experiencing shame, it's how do we shift to creating a community and a culture where we're not actively shaming other people because that is such a different thing. So the the actual experience or feeling of shame is this threat to one's belonging and feeling as though there's something that's going to stop or prevent somebody from that sense of belonging. And it's inherent within us and it all comes from years of experiences that have led us to essentially create our own shame narrative and how it comes to play for us. But I think what you're describing and when you talk about shaming other people, or there are a lot of ways that we become 
oftentimes not conscious, but in some ways conscious contributors to shame. And that's definitely something I think that we need to look at for ourselves and as a community and culture as a whole and think about how we address that. And so what I find really hard is when you are in a situation, there is a discussion and you are the one feeling like you are being shamed and having already this awareness, what's going on and having these red flags going up like, whoa, that's not cool. But how do we point it out? How do we make it in that situation that this conversation is going somewhere? That's not cool. Do you realize what you're doing to me? Mm-hmm. So having worked with people on various aspects of shame, both within themselves and understanding how we respond to it and other people, I think so much of the initial steps to really even getting to that point of awareness is to be willing to sit in and get curious about your shame and where it's come from. And so getting to the point where you can recognize those yellow flags or you can recognize those points where, oh, that's going to trigger something or this is something that kind of like the first domino in a cascade that sets something off. We aren't going to be able to do that until we've spent time getting to know what that looks like. And I think a lot of those examples, even considering what might feel shaming for me, isn't shaming for somebody else. What might feel like it's a threat, for example, I have such a strong shame narrative around needing to be perfect and needing to be the person that does everything for everyone. And that's where a lot of my story came as a young person and emerging adult to feeling like I had to do that in order to belong, in order to be worthy of other people's sense of belonging or to feel like I was a part of something. Well, that narrative that I've carried, it isn't true, but it feels true to me. And so something really small is such as if I make food for people and someone doesn't like it, or I say something that hurts someone's feelings, that activates such a strong shame response in me that I can feel the dominoes going down immediately in the room. Whereas you might not have that same shame story. And so it might not feel overwhelming for you if someone says they don't like something that you made, or you feel like you made a mistake, but you might might feel shame from something totally different that I might not. So part of this, I think, is and kind of what you were even alluding to with really wanting to go deeper into this whole aspect of belonging is really thinking about first this idea of belonging within ourselves and spending a lot of time there before we are able to take that preventative and more responsive approach. Yeah, it's that. But it's also when I think about my own shame experience, the most vivid ones that I have is definitely with my parents and growing up. And when I now think as an adult, having a discussion or a conversation, and sometimes my parents, when they get uncomfortable, they fall into these old patterns of treating me like the kid and then going this shame blame route And it's like, whoa, that's not cool. And I'm not 10, 15 years old. Be aware of how you speak to me. It becomes, from their side, very often very defensive, as if me putting up a boundary feels almost to them like an aggression. Mm -hmm. Well, and the hard thing too is, so shame, when we experience it, we have what Brene Brown has termed strategies of disconnection or for disconnection. It's really what we study in our therapeutic response, understanding interpersonal defenses. So basically, 
when we experience shame, there are three sort of shields that often come up and can be the response that we have to other people. So the first one is they're all really in relation to interpersonal dynamics. The first one is moving towards, meaning that you are going to pull yourself towards that other person, oftentimes in a subservient way where you are trying to do everything, be everything for them. You kind of take this lesser stance in order to essentially provide everything they could need to feel like you belong. The second option is called moving away, which is where you start to isolate, pull away, distance yourself from other people. This is where sometimes people that struggle with different substance use or things like that might also start to use that. It's essentially detaching in any way you can. One big example I know that comes up for a lot of people with this is when I'm starting to feel like I'm flailing or failing and my shame story gets pretty loud, I might avoid all texting or emails and just kind of detach from the world. And then the third response is what's called moving against. And it's that if I feel shame, my immediate response is to create shame in somebody else by making them feel shame and anger because I have it too. And so it's this defense you're describing. It would be interesting to think more about if there's something, and obviously I don't know your parents, but something in that dynamic where when you're coming back and putting that boundary, if that almost subconsciously activates some shame in them and this feeling of, no, this is this is how we get our worth and value and this is what we're supposed to do and you're kind of creating a threat or a challenge to that, not because you're trying to, but because they're perceiving it that way and then they come back in this sort of shame response. And the way I can kind of tell that shame is showing up with me or with anybody else is it's kind of baiting you for a response. So when you feel that response from your parents, it's almost like it pulls you to want to have an emotional reaction. It wants to loop you back in to stay in that feedback loop and dynamic that's not helpful for either side versus just saying, okay, they feel that, I feel this, here's my boundary and walking away, which is why it's such a tricky loop to get caught in because we're all experiencing it and we're all responding differently. Yeah, it's definitely hard to stay cool when when that happens because it layers up and it almost becomes this game of topping up who's got the last word and it's a power game for sure and that's interesting especially if you think that the only way that you have a place is if you're above everyone else i don't know have you ever heard of the game king of the hill no so i grew up in the midwest in wisconsin and there's snow all the time during the winter. And so what would happen when we were growing up is there were basically snow plows would come and they would plow the snow up and you'd get these huge snow piles. And so you'd go outside at recess and you would play this game, King of the Hill, which looking back is one of the most dangerous games that I don't know why teachers and parents thought it was okay to play. But essentially it's saying, whoever can get to the top of this snow pile is the best. And I think it's the greatest metaphor for understanding shame and belonging because we're all trying to find a way of fitting into the world around us. And when we have this belief that's perpetuated that there's only one person at the top and that's the person with the most value, you either get caught in that fight to get up to the top, which is kind of what you were describing in this sort of power shift and control, or you see people just relinquish their power and feel like they don't have a place 
other than to be of service to those with more power. And so that ultimately leads them to create and exist in a shame narrative where they're kind of at the bottom watching the game versus even feeling like they have the right to play. Instead of saying everyone has a place, everyone can be at the top because shame only can function when there is this power and this threat and all of us are sort of keeping it in silence and letting it grow within us. All right. It's a really good metaphor now that you've explained it. And it's such an unfair game because it's always going to be the tallest, strongest, oldest in the group mm -hmm. that will get on top of the hill. Mm -hmm. I have another question. When preparing for this interview, I had to reflect back on the situations of shame that came up in my own life. And I wanted to ask you, is there a good side to shame or is there positive side effects to shame? Because I have a story in my life where I felt so horribly ashamed. And that was a turning point for me to then say, never again. And it definitely turned me for the better. Yeah. So I think that it's really important for people to understand because we use shame and guilt interchangeably and they're two very different things. And so if somebody experiences guilt, guilt is I did something bad. I, I lied. I stole something. I hurt someone's feelings. Shame is I am bad. This belief that I myself am a bad person or I am not lovable or unworthy. So the difference here is if I did something bad or if I did something I don't like, it gives me a lot more power to do something about it, to respond, to shift, to change. And so guilt is a really, really powerful and awesome emotion that can help you check in with your values and see how you're responding to your own morals, the morals of your community, things like that. Shame, I think there's kind of this opposing argument for whether or not it's positive or negative. A lot of people that are in the field will talk about how this can kind of guide people to stay in line, quote, for society, stick within the norms. Sometimes I think that's just a way of kind of keeping people conforming to a culture or a way of existing that might not always be best. What I think as a therapist when I work with people on their shame is that Once we can identify we're experiencing it, I think it's a really awesome place to, and this might be where you're going to go, where it almost becomes like this invitation to go deeper and to pivot around it. Because when you're feeling shame, there's something there that is so deeply rooted in you or has become this threat that we have the opportunity once we can name it to shift our association with it. Almost that reclamation or the reclaiming of your power and taking that back to realize, for example, somebody shifting from assuming they have to dress a certain way, they have to be a certain weight or body type to fit in with their friends and then realizing that that's not ultimately true and learning to take that power back and challenging that and seeing their worth as independent of those things. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I still, when I go back to my story, I guess I'm going back to the physical sensation of how that felt. And when I heard you talking, I was like, oh, I was just feeling guilty. That was, was more guilt than shame. Mm. But then when I go back in the memory and I emerge myself in that, because it was such a turning point for myself, mm -hmm. it definitely feels like shame. Mm -hmm. 
And so my story is my parents were very self-involved and there was not much time to spend on me. And then when attention was given to me, that was most of the times in, in relation to school and grades. And there was a lot of shaming of not being good enough. And in my teenage years, I got very, very angry because I felt that's so unjust to say because we were moving a lot and I had to catch up. I, I always had to do so much more than all the other kids. And I remember coming back that one time home and I got what would be the equivalent to an American B minus in a subject that I was a classic A student. It always came easy to me. And I had to show my notes and we had to get a signature from the parents. And my parents saw that and it became this shame fest. And I got so angry. I'm like, how, how you know, how dare you? Mm-hmm. And then I went out. I was, I was so angry. I was 15 years old. And I was so much in my anger. And I was like, oh, you don't know what it's like to be ashamed of your kid. Like, you cannot tell me that you are ashamed for me because I have a B minus. I'll give you something to be ashamed of. So I went out and did something really, really stupid with the intention to be caught. And with the intentions, my parents had to pick me up at the police station. Mm. And, I was, and that was in anger and I did it on purpose. So I shoplifted. Mm -hmm. I went into a shop with an empty backpack and left full, like it was full. (laughs) And I wasn't, it wasn't even close. I wanted, like, I just wanted to be caught and I wanted them to have the experience to be properly ashamed. But during that time that I was then sitting with the guy who caught me, took me in the back, had to call the police, had to call my parents, somebody to pick me up. I saw this guy looking at me and he's like, what you do this for? And I was just like, oh my. Like I was so ashamed of myself. The realization that I was doing something so stupid in the way people look at me, my reputation, the way I see myself for somebody else's reaction, I felt really ashamed. And I told myself, I will never do this again. I mean, for sure, there were other situations when I afterwards felt ashamed Mm -hmm. that happened, but I never went out be dumb on a conscious basis. I mean, that definitely sounds like it's shame in a variety of ways. It sounds like sort of the first aspect of it is the narrative that was created for you by your parents that your worth and value was connected to the grades that you got. And I think that's a story that so many people experience is feeling like if they do not achieve at a certain level, there's something about them that's not good enough, that's not accurate, that's not right or isn't worthy of love and belonging. And so it sounds like that was already this story that had been created between you all. And it sounds like for a while, your response or your internal defense kind of was to do what you could to get the grades that you felt you needed or to maybe you on some level wanted to achieve it that way. A lot of it might have been connected to your parents sounds to me like what happened in that moment when you then have such a strong reaction to their response and them really shaming you and them responding that way, they are playing into that shame narrative. And it's almost like you switched to that third defense, that moving against where it's, well, if I'm already not worthy of love and belonging, then I might as well go to the extreme. And it's this very reactive response to your parents to make them feel like crap because they made you feel like crap. And so I think it's easy now to assume that you had some consciousness because you were on some level aware that it was happening. 
But one of the things that's really important to understand too is when our shame is so strongly activated and we feel like this threat is so prevalent, you likely did not have as much control and autonomy in those moments as you thought you did because your body and your brain sort of went to this very desperate response state of just, well, almost like throwing your hands up in the air, screw it. I'm going to show you just how ashamed of me you can be because you're always going to see me this way anyways. And so that becomes sort of an inverse defense that your body puts up. And it sounds like where the really awesome opportunity for you came into play is once that The difference we talk about between responsive and reactive is when you're reactive, there's a lot of emotion-driven interactions and just how you feel and respond is very laden in your emotions rather than kind of allowing your emotions in but not to overly guide. And it sounds like you went to that very reactive place, but you shifted to a place of responsiveness once you came out of it and you were able to see, this is not the version of me that I want to be which shows on some level, you're describing a turning point for you of saying, this isn't worth it. Me losing myself to these narratives that I don't agree with or to be this person that I'm not okay with every day. And that also shows a degree of shame resilience and you being able to flip within that rather than be consumed by the narrative, which a lot of other people might not have been able to do. Yeah, it definitely felt to me like I was trying to be worthy for so long and so hard. And then in that moment when I was sitting there and I realized this whole shame narrative goes beyond me and my parents, it's with me and myself and me and the outside world that I just, I dropped the anger and I decided they are not worth for me to try so hard to be worthy. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like kind of getting to that point was almost a pretty big shift and disconnect from your relationship with them because absolutely that's something that when you talk about shame resilience and overcoming shame and the way that you can work through it and move past it, one of those key places is to recognize how your shame narrative has been developed from the time you were young, from the time that you developed these core beliefs about yourself and about who you're quote unquote supposed to be. But then looking at who are these shame reinforcers or in many cases, shame activators, because as adults, a lot of people might still have, if it's their parents, a partner, their siblings, people that have been in their lives forever, a lot of people still have those shame activators in their lives. And so for you, I think it's kind of you went through this process of healing and and shifting the way that shame was going to show up with them by disconnecting from and not continually going back and having that same feedback loop from them, which is legitimately one of the primary steps that people can take to overcome and break out of those shame narratives. Yeah, it's so true. And it leads me right to my next question, going back to why I contacted you in the first place. And that is obviously me wanting to understand in my business, my clients a little bit better. And what I noticed in my business, and speaking of design, and design has this luxury tag on it, is that when I try to get to know my clients, I always like to drop casually in the conversation the word proud or feeling proud like an objective at the end of our work together. And I get very mixed responses. Some people are almost relieved. Oh, yes, yes, to be proud. It's like they've tasted that word in their mouth and they repeat it several times. And it's this, this thing that they can taste. 
And then some people react like this is a no-go. They blush, they stop, their eyes are widened. It's almost as, oh, we don't talk about this. It's like you can't, they can't make the differentiation of being honestly proud of yourself and acting prideful. And I like to drop the word at some point very early on in our conversation just to see what the initial reaction is, what it triggers in them. And then it's those people who react really, no, 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 we, we can't do this. And, you know, it's like almost this, this shameful reaction, like they push it away. Like it's this bad word. It's this bad attribute. And I wanted to understand where does it come from? If shame is the opposite of belonging or a big opponent, and then, but pride or being proud is also an opponent of shame. Is that, is that connected? Because I have my own little theory of proud people, people that feel honest pride in themselves are very generous and very giving because they know nobody can take that from them. Yeah, I think, so the question that I always will ask people when it comes to having a really strong response to something, and I think what you're describing is even how I see so many people respond if I ask them to consider doing something for themselves or to ask the question, what do you want? What feels right to you? And people equating that with being selfish. And I think you're coming in and kind of imagine that there's this tapestry that's woven throughout the course of our lives and all of the threads of our experiences get laid into each other. And we can, over time, kind of shift the focus or the importance of different threads or parts of our lives, but it's still there. And in many ways, people equate this sense of being prideful or to be proud is another element of how shame comes into play because there are two probably active threats here. One, thinking if I assert myself as being better or the best, they're equating this as some relation to other people rather than seeing that they have the right to be proud and to set themselves up or their lives up the way that they want independent of others. It all connects back. And then they think, oh, if I do that, I'm setting myself up to say I'm better than, or I'm more than, or I, I can't do those things. I have to be considering, again, that aspect of belonging. And what do I have to do to keep performing and conforming to the world around me? And the second part, I think, is to really consider for people when they think about what they're doing, what they want, how their lives are created. So often when I ask people, who are you living for? Or who was that decision made for? A lot of times it might not feel like they can get there right away. But if we can kind of hash through that and get down through the layers, there's so many elements of that that ultimately are rooted in their beliefs about needing to be a certain way or acting a certain way for others. So they're creating that design or they want this home or they want this layout, whatever kind of thing they're coming in with, they don't know what it would be like to feel proud because they don't know what they want because they've been performing or existing in this sort of narrative for so long that they have to be a certain way. And so I think when you ask this question, you're inviting them to make space for themselves independent of anyone else. And I always think back to when I would win awards or I would have these opportunities, I had this weird sort of internal conflict where I loved it. It's almost like I loved the attention. I wanted to be famous. I wanted everybody to know who I was. I wanted to be seen. 
because part of my shame story said the only way that I would have worth and value is if everybody knew who I was and I was constantly, quote unquote, better than everyone else. But then the second part of me thought, I can't do that. If I do that, it goes against my values. I want, I care about everybody. I want everyone to have a place. And so you're making space to tell people that they can stand in the light. They can create their own light and honor what they need and want and to have pride in that because it's theirs. It's their story and their interpretation. But for so many people, they're hearing it and it's so interwoven with all of those other threads that they can't hear it as an invitation. It feels like a threat because if they chose themselves, it's almost like they would be choosing to disconnect. Yeah. See, it's funny whole lot of place because now with the corona and global lockdown situation, I find it interesting to see and hear who thrives during lockdown, being by themselves mm -hmm. and who does not. And then when I ask clients or people just on social media in general, now that nobody can come and visit, now that you can't show it off, do you still like your home? Or are you feeling helpless or almost like, oh, I have to do something now. I have to use the time and I have to change something that when I get out, I have something to show for. And then there is a second type of clients. When I was an employee for somebody else, we would do corporate design. And some of these corporate people decided they want our service for their private lives as well. And many treated making their home beautiful, just like this branding exercise. And when you do that in your home, when your home becomes this catalog of must-haves, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. an office has to be this, this, and this, our brand identity is this, it becomes so unpersonal that those clients always ended up really, really unhappy with whatever we delivered because they didn't give themselves the room to tell us what makes you personally like it. And then they have this vision of who they want to be, how they want to perform on the external world, and then how can they bring that into their home so they're in constant performance mode, so they will get better at performing, and it doesn't work like that. And then people get very fixated on objectives that are completely besides the point. So I always like to give that example of somebody having a photo of a hotel lobby in Dubai and saying, I want this. This is for my home. And other than the picture that we see, there is no other explanation. There is no other richness of information other than this. And this looks like that. And then when you ask the program question, okay, what do you like about it? It becomes really difficult for, for people to articulate so how can we help people to be more tuned in into their needs without making it either a performance or the, the shameful experience? I think the way you're already setting yourself up to interact with people is that invitation. And this is where I think it's so hard because I experience this too as an artist where someone will want me to commission a piece for them and, and paint some piece for them. And that same question will come up. And I'm not going to just paint a picture of something or paint a random image that you thought was cool to put up in your home because you think it's artsy. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to learn about you. I want to 
make sure what's being put in your home or what's being created for you has a connection. And I can refer you to 50 other people that can do these verbatim things and they can just copy a photo for you or do whatever. But that to me doesn't create anything that feels like it's really deeply connected or a value to you. And when that comes up, I think I don't know where that person is necessarily at in their own journey, their own insight and awareness, but all I can do, whether it's me as an artist, me as a therapist, me as just a human, is to create opportunity and to invite that curiosity. And I think, you know, using your example of the picture of a hotel lobby in Dubai, asking people, what does is, what is it feel like? And I, I know this is something we've yeah. talked about too, that you you kind of bring this out for people, but tell me what you feel when you walk into this space. When you imagine this being your home, what's the emotion that comes out? What's the sensation that you get? What is the, what is the experience that you want to have being inside of your home? Or even to a degree when somebody walks into your space, because not every time that we focus on others is it bad, but really asking people and inviting people to talk about what do you feel physically? What do you feel mentally, emotionally, even and on a subconscious level, there might be something to if if everything can look this way, then I can be perceived as having things figured out, as things being okay. I even feel that as a new mom. There was a night that my mother-in-law was here and my daughter was taking a nap and I was like, oh great, I'll clean up the kitchen, I'll do these things. And she looks at me and she says, or don't because maybe it would be okay if your house looked a little bit like a mess. There's nothing wrong with you that your house doesn't look perfect all the time. And it was this interesting reminder, especially knowing that we had this discussion coming up and just thinking about space. And again, even some degree of performance that I have of why does it matter if I haven't picked something up or even I'll I'll go through our living room and I'll put the pillows in a very specific way. And my husband is, we've been together for 10 years and he jokes all the time about it where he's like, oh, somebody messed up the pillows again because he keeps joking with me that I feel this need to set them in a very specific way. But the point of the pillows on the couch and the the feeling that we wanted was to create the space that just felt comfortable, that people could exist in and feel like they could kind of do that feeling. Well, when it looks all pristine, you lose that. And then I'm becoming more about trying to create an image versus letting the feeling exist. And so I think if you can make space for that, but also what you're doing too of just easing them into that, inviting those questions and conversations, making space for them to feel those things. And I think having those conversations of this being a reflection of who they are and they have a right to create things that feel in line with themselves and they might not be able to do it with the whole room. And so it's also Mm -hmm. even thinking, how do you create even just a 1% change for them to shift from being something for everyone else versus being who they are for themselves? It's definitely that feeling of people always expect it has to be all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And I like, I always like to ask, who do you get to be when you are in this space? Because we're not doing a vacation in Dubai every other week right it's this you know it's this maybe once in a lifetime experience and who do you get to be like who do you see yourself when you are in this luxury space and you turn around and you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror it's also this playful approach of who are you or who were you or do you deserve it but at some point in the future distant or near 
who do you see yourself becoming? Mm-hmm. And then with all luxury items or services associated, there's always this question of what is a healthy need? And some people like to deprive themselves and some people like to overindulge. We all know people who have closets bursting or five million shoes or handbags or jackets or lipsticks or not letting themselves have anything. So since I'm an expat and I work a lot with expats, another sensation is that people are usually like fed up. They finally want to have something because they have been depriving themselves for so long. They've been cool with so many things when they were actually not. They were telling themselves, like, I'm, I'm okay with a student life. So I'm okay with just having two suitcases. I, I might be leaving. I don't need this. And then my question is, are they depriving themselves or are they overindulging? It's the same with food, right? If you are hungry and you eat, that's healthy. If you are hungry and you don't need, mm-hmm. why are you depriving yourself? Or when you are not hungry and you keep eating, why do we do this? So do you have any insight on that? How do we for ourselves make this distinction? I want this. Do I need this? We never ask ourselves, is that healthy? But once you go more into the purchase and creating consciously, whatever it is, if it's a room or a capsule wardrobe or life's decisions, how do we make the distinction? What are good indicators? This is a healthy need that I have. Yeah. And I think really having people consider that both the sort of over and under indulgence, the over control or rigidity and saying, I can't have anything versus under control and feeling like bringing everything in, both ultimately can be rooted in the same issue of how we describe that all or nothing approach of I either have to be perfect or I can't control anything. And if we use the food example of thinking, I can't allow myself to have any of these things because that's what it means to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to show control and some sort of superiority or feeling like they're completely out of control and the way that they're taking in food or engaging with their body changing. And when you consider that then when it comes to stuff, the more shame we experience, the more we, quote, over. We overspend, we overanalyze, we overindulge, we overthink. Now, not everybody does all of those things. There are some people like you're describing that they might have a significant amount of shame and they are living in a state of depravity and saying that they can't have these things or they shouldn't want those things or using my favorite swear word, which is fine and telling themselves, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. It's okay. I'm fine. I, I don't need those things because they've told themselves that there's something that it would mean about them if they did, or they don't have the right to that. But then on the flip side, this feeling of if I, I can almost, and Brene Brown talks about this when it comes to being busy, when it comes to filling our lives with stuff, this idea that it's almost like we think if we can keep ourselves busy enough or fill ourselves with so much stuff in our life, it's like we can outrun or hide out from our shame. Like we won't have to deal with the discomfort and the hate that we have for our lives and how shitty we feel because we're going to have been able to outrun it or avoid it long enough. And so I think they're both rooted in the same space, but they are, they're kind of two manifestations. And so so much of this, I think, comes back to honoring the fact that you you are entitled to have wants independent of needs. And then asking yourself, what what would it feel like to allow yourself to have those things? And what is it 
what's the story that seems to be associated with that? Because it's not ultimately the act of buying the lipstick or buying, you know, X, Y, or Z. There's something that they they have associated or attributed to that when they do buy it. And I'm definitely someone that falls on that don't indulge in anything side. And I, I mean, I even ended up struggling with this through an eating disorder and having basically restriction and depravity be the theme of my life overall, because it was constantly this feeling of, I have to be in a place devoid of anything for myself and be of service to other people. And I have to make sure that I look, act and and respond in the best ways for others. And even now, if I want to go and look at something, I needed a new pair of jeans. And I remember going to the store and I immediately went to the sales rack. And my husband's like, if you happen to find a pair of jeans that are on sale, that's great. But what is it that tells you that you have to start with domino one, they have to be on sale? Why are you... And I do this with clothes all the time. I've never, I never allow myself to buy something at full price. And there's something rooted in that for me about... I don't deserve to buy that full price thing or it makes me irresponsible or quote bad if I do that. And if I look into that, it's stories I got growing up. I was raised by a grandparent who lived and survived during the Great Depression and stories that I got told about financial responsibility and what does this mean? And when you're talking about specifically working with expats and talking about people that are in this state of oftentimes not feeling rooted, not feeling connected to themselves or their place for a variety of reasons. So much of this then even asking themselves, what do you want and how do you allow yourself to have it? Again, a lot of people will name it as guilt at first, but it is shame. It's this feeling like I don't have this right to claim these things because there's something unworthy or not good enough about me, I should be fine, but others can have that. Right. Yeah. Even if you are depriving yourself in one area and by telling yourself this is this is you being in control, you're overdoing something else at the same time. So you might be depriving yourself from food or from nice clothes, but at the same time, you're putting such an emphasis on something else. Like you're doing too much in another area. So how can we build people up? How can we invite them to be more daring, to be more courageous without being manipulative? I think so much of it is about, in therapy, we call it a corrective emotional experience. So if somebody comes in and any time that they have said what they really felt or were thinking, they had a negative reaction. Or if they stood up for themselves, if they said no, this is a really common thing for people that feel like they have to give themselves to everybody all the time, that they have either built it up, it's going to be terrible, or they've had bad experiences. It makes sense that they don't want to do these things again because they're afraid of what it's going to mean. And so if people have grown up having experiences where when they were different or when they chose themselves or when they did think about what they want or need, where maybe it wasn't responded to in a good way or when they didn't feel like they were meeting all these external expectations, it meant something bad about them. You want to see yourself as someone that has the opportunity to provide a corrective experience. And so it's not so much that it's our job to walk them through things, but to create opportunities and then to shower them with love and support when they take those opportunities. So for example, I really struggle with saying no and being honest with people. So someone 
invites me to go do things. I am very introverted. I don't like going out. I mean, granted now, none of us are really going out and doing these things, anything given COVID, but pre-COVID, I was always being invited to go to networking events or to go out with friends to go do different things. And I really struggle with wanting to do that. It just doesn't feel good for me. I spend a lot of my energy supporting other people. And when I go into places, even if they're supposed to be quote unquote fun nights out, I often get into a position where I'm kind of being asked to call upon my professional hat or I just, I feel drained. And so a lot of times people would ask me, you know, Hey, let's go do this thing. Or do you want to come out with us? Do you want to do this? And I didn't want to go. So I would either end up saying yes. And then at the last minute getting sick or having some sort of excuse why I couldn't go, or I would lie and make up a reason why I couldn't make it that time. Well, both of those are not being honest with the other people, but also with myself. And they reinforce in me that I don't have the right to just say, no, I'm not interested in that. That is not of a, of a priority or importance to me. I care about you. I just don't want to go to you know trivia or sing karaoke. I want to stay home and have a night to myself. And so I had a really good friend I met after I moved out to the West Coast where she asked me to do something and I was working with my therapist and we were like, all right, this is the time. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to tell her, I don't want to go because I don't like doing those things. And the response I got from her was so much love, so supportive, if anything ever changes, but I'll see you next week for our hike. And it was the most amazing response and such a corrective experience that reinforced the belief that oh, I actually do have a right to have a feeling or a want that's different from other people. And so it might look a little different when you're talking about having somebody design something in their home or having somebody do, you know, kind of thinking about these translational interactions that you're having. But there are opportunities for that of asking people what they think about something. Do they like something? What would they pick if they knew no matter what, everyone would love it, right? What's their secret thing that they they love and they wish they could have in their home or whatever? Yeah. And then you celebrate it. And then what that does is if their shame is still going to rule out those stories of you have to be this way or act this way. It's not going to just suddenly go away, but you're planting in the possibility of doubt that maybe their shame isn't always leading them in the right direction. Maybe their shame, even though it thinks it's being helpful by saying, if you do these things, you'll be worthy of connection and we need connection. Maybe instead it's, well, your shame took it too far or your shame is now like an overprotective mother that's not realizing that that's not helping you experience failure and to see that you're okay. And really having them think about how do they shift that and kind of reclaim their power over their shame. And again, kind of when you asked in the beginning, can shame be helpful if they can shift to feeling like their shame is a part of them, not the driver or the writer of their story, then it can be helpful because then they're shifting to a place of feeling in control over it and it can give them input without deciding. And then they can kind of shift even more into that place of who am I and what do I want, not who am I supposed to be in order to be worthy. It's interesting. That's so good. So you mentioned that people always come knocking on your door and wanting some professional advice. (laughs) Do you think it's related because you are working in the health sector? Because while you were talking, like I was smiling. I have the exact opposite 
problem (laughs) (laughs) because when I meet them and I love to go to networking events and then you say you are an interior designer, they have a look on their face as if you pulled a tooth, like Mm. talking about dentists and like, oh, oh really? Yeah. Um, And then it's like, "Mm, uh, you know, well, I have like a... Mm, and, and they become really awkward or they get really prideful. I said, yes, we just bought our house and we're going to do it. And it always makes me smile because it's like I'm put in a position or I'm expected to be a judgy person. Mm-hmm. And it just tells me like, oh, you are the judgy person. It just tells me something about you. Like everybody judges by their own example. So if you right. judge me to be judgy, <laughs> it's just what you would do if you would come to my house. And then when I go to other people's houses and they, they realize I'm an interior designer, everybody gets into this. They're making excuses like, oh, don't yeah. look at this. Look, don't, don't, don't look at them. It's like, oh, and, 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 and the kids' toys. And it's like, and especially with kids' toys, then I'm, I look at them and I say, like, well, those are the great toys. Those yeah. are the ones playing around. Those are the ones you can keep. Go into the shelf and the ones that are still in the shelf and never yeah. leave the shelf, <laughs> those you can check out. And then people are like, are you right? They're so obsessed of putting everything back into place. And that is not my conception of a home worth having. Like you have to live. It's just a sign that that's something good. You bought something amazing for your kid that your kid is playing with. So if that's lying on the ground, like who cares? I try to see the person in the room, but everybody's getting so defensive. And so, oh, they're climbing up. Well, you are saying like they're coming up to you and like and they want more and they want more. <laughs> well, I think so much of it is both of us are creating opportunity for people to be seen. But I think someone will hear that I'm a therapist and it's almost I think initially a lot of people will have that reaction of, oh, you know, or they'll kind of make a joke or play it off like, oh, I, I need help or like I really could use you. And so it's kind of this half hey, I really want to talk to somebody type thing. But I think what ends up happening is the more you can create safety for people, the more they lean in. Because all of us on some level want to get out of our shame stories. Where I've basically coined and kind of talk about it as the predictable shittiness bubble. We live in our state of fine and we perfect our lives, kind of this little patch of green grass. And we're just going to tend to that. and We're going to make it look perfect. We kind of keep going in a circle, chasing this norm of perfection None of us are happy, but we know how to exist in it. We at least, we know how to be fine. We know how to deal with the negatives of it. We, it feels predictable enough that we can have a sense of safety. But for so many of us looking out into the world around us thinking, oh goodness, I just want to go in this other patch of grass, but our fear gets in the way. And so I think sometimes when someone will find out I'm a therapist or they'll find out what I do, a lot of times it happens more when somebody sees me as a speaker or kind of out in the world doing something that maybe they've been introduced to me as a therapist, but I've I've started communicating and kind of creating that safety, suddenly their walls come down and they're flooding with things. Now, it doesn't mean that people want to make a change. Sometimes people will spend their whole time doing the same thing you're describing of almost wanting me to tell them that they're okay and kind of seeking approval and or trying to kind of write off, well, you know, don't pay attention to this and don't look at this. But I think it's this idea of for you specifically, I remember even when we were talking before deciding to do this episode, I was reflecting back to when I was a kid and 
I'm an only child and I very much was privileged in terms of the amount of toys and things that I had. And I remember I had a huge Barbie house and I had tons of Barbies and I had all these clear boxes with blue tops where there was a box for shoes, a box for brushes. I had all of these different things. Well, I was talking with my mother-in-law recently about what it was like to play with dolls, play with my Barbies growing up. And she talked about when she was a kid and when my husband and his sister were kids and how they would play. I'm like, oh, I didn't do that. I would spend hours meticulously setting up my Barbie house. The Barbies didn't even go in the house. I didn't even play with them most of the time. I would set up the house to look a very specific way. And then I would sit on the floor and look at the house. And I would get pissed if somebody would move something in it. I didn't want the people to come in and play because I was just projecting an image. And going back on that and doing my own therapy work, I think it's the same thing you're seeing with a lot of people that you work with of just trying to create this sort of vision in their head. And for me, if I could do that, it was almost it was almost like that was a sense of security and a stable feeling because I went through a lot of really traumatic things as a kid. And so I didn't think about living in and imperfections and things getting broken or people playing with stuff or things wearing out. I needed everything to look perfect and be a certain way at all times. And I still feel that same sense now in my own home and now having had my daughter and thinking, okay, there's going to be stuff that's left out. There are going to be things that don't look a certain way. That just means that we're enjoying our days together. We're enjoying our time together. But in those moments when I'm by myself and I'm seeing this thing or I look around the house, my rational brain or the part of my brain that can make space for that isn't always able to win out over my shame brain, which subconsciously tells me then that there's something wrong because I'm still going for this certain look or way of being because that's again where I somehow have gotten it in my head that that's where I'm more worthy. So I think when you see that, you're seeing a full life and you want to help people create space to live a full and authentic life. You're not just thinking about what's the the hanging on the wall or the couch that they pick or the specific color palette of the room. You're thinking, then what happens a few months from now when your family walks in and you have movie night? or you're going to all spend time together, or when you're celebrating that something really exciting just happened for someone in the family, or when your kid comes to you and you have a hard conversation and you sit on this couch and there's this feeling of safety. You're thinking about these things. But for so many people, they've devoided themselves from even imagining their life like that. And they just, again, look at the projection versus that other piece. Yeah, I think it's definitely... That's the big downside that I see in the design and interior industry, because we always, just like in the beauty industry, mm-hmm. we just always see the perfect body. We see the perfect house and everything is staged. Yep. And what people don't realize, I will just categorize it here brutally into average people and people who have overcome that in some mm-hmm. sort. So the average person thinks that a house or a designed home is just a certain way. So it's Mm -hmm. a very limited view. And they compare it to everything that is on TV and in the magazines. And you see, let's say, in Architectural Digest, this house of, let's say, the Obamas. And it's like, that is not their house. And that that is not Michelle who decided... (laughs) Well, today I'm going to take pictures and I'm going to put them on social media. Or even better, I'm going to send them to Architectural Digest. Right. And 
I'm going to show the world how I'm living because that's not the way they live. Those fancy houses, the people that live in there, 99% of the time, they don't feel the desire that they have to show it off. Those pictures that are in the magazine, Mm -hmm. that's the architect saying, I designed a home for me. Let me bring in a photographer so I have that for my portfolio so I can show somebody else what is possible. Yep. And most of the time, it's not the owner of the house taking these photos and thinking they have to show it off. It's just a portfolio picture for the person that designed it. Yep. And what then also becomes so funny about these whole Instagram worthy pictures and design and people always feeling they need to change something in their home to be something they have to document and they have to show it off. And then after a while, it's getting boring. So they're doing it. And that is okay. If that is your personality about being of change and being bold and trying out things, But if that's like so counterintuitive for you and you feel like, oh, you have to get this. And I recently read an article, apparently it's a thing. They go to Ikea and other stores, do a haul, they call it my Ikea haul, Mm -hmm. bring a thousand bucks worth of stuff home, Mm -hmm. make photos. And then because they actually can't afford it, bring it back because Ikea has the 30 days, no question, ask bring it back and you get your money back and just like yep wait that's a thing like Mm -hmm. why would you do that That is so exhaustion oh my god and i'm doing design so it's my profession like why would i always keep taking pictures of everything like oh my god but apparently it's a thing well it's the same as i run a project called the reclaim beauty project and it's all about this idea of reclaiming our worth and value and the beauty that we have inside and out and one of the things that we do is we talk to people about taking photos and being in a place where they're having photos and sharing their stories and it's not perfectly set up the lighting's not necessarily perfect there's nothing that's done in photoshop there's no tweaking there's no editing we want to see who you are and it's such a hard thing for people when it first started it was a social media movement and i asked people to just take a photo of themselves, not take 50 photos of yourself and pick the best one and edit it and post that to your social media, but just snap a photo and let yourself feel like who you are. The photo is not what's making you you, right? That perfect image of the room doesn't make you more worthwhile. It's who you are as a whole and the essence and the feeling and and your value as a complete person or as that home that means so much more than just a staged room. And I think people struggle so much with that. And and I do agree with you. I think the culture of social media and technology and the accessibility of seeing more of these sort of idealized ways of looking, being, acting, particularly home. I mean, it's all over where you see people's perfectly staged houses. You go, how do people get that? And they look happy. So I should do that because that's what it means to be successful or happy or whatever it is. And I remember even when we first started telling people that we were pregnant and people asking about how we were going to decorate our nursery and what we were going to do and asking about all these things. And first of all, she's sleeping right next to us because of co-sleeping and all of that. But secondly, she's a foot long. She doesn't need a lot of space and she doesn't need a whole room that is completely designed. And for some people, kind of like you said, that is really important for them. And that is something that brings them a sense of connection and having that space in that room that they can walk into and feel calm and feel connected to their baby. That's so important. 
but it's the feeling underneath, not this pull to, I have to make this very beautiful, special room because otherwise I'm not a good parent. And I could feel that pull of, I have to make this space special and I have to make sure it looks a certain way and is a certain way. And it's like, I've noticed now we don't share anything on social media about her or about like no photos of her, no photos of our space her quote unquote room, like where her changing table, her clothes and toys are, is also our spare bedroom and my office. So it's not even this setup in the same way, but I could feel initially this need to fight that pressure of, I have to do these things because you'd see these. And now obviously certain social media apps will kind of have that targeted Mm -hmm. marketing. And so I would see all these things and then feel like, well, am I doing something wrong by not having this space that way? But the thing is, what we have done works for us. And I can be in this space and weirdly, while I'm in my quote unquote office space, I feel a different sense of connection because she's in the room with me in a different way. And when we're in another part of the house and we're playing, but it's, I think that push pull is something that people, there's this feeling like you're going to be able to do something and you're going to be able to kind of outwit or overcome your shame, kind of like we talked about in the beginning. But shame's going to keep showing up. It's just how much space do I give it? And so that pull that I felt in the beginning to buy all those things. And I even remember when we were in Ikea and we were looking for the setup and they have these cute little areas set up. I'm like, oh, we should get this and this and this. I'm like, wait a minute, she can't do any of these things. What value is it to have it? But I could feel that it's that over time, the more I, I guess, insight I've developed into my shame and understanding the role it plays, the more I can call attention to it and say, ah, I could do that, but at what cost? And that I think becomes the bigger question is the more I see my time, my sense of who I am or the enjoyment I have in the world as something that has value, the more I can go, I could give her the most beautifully crafted room but not just what's the financial cost, but what would be the cost to me in terms of feeling like I have to have it look a certain way, be a certain way, that I'd, I'd have to give up some of these other spaces and things that are important to me right now. Or just like, again, thinking if I lean into that, what is the cost versus the return on my investment? And in my case, the return wasn't good enough to make it make sense for me. So I don't know if that's, you know, makes sense, but no, no, it, it totally makes sense. And I think we totally need to point out that we shouldn't be ashamed of being ashamed. Right. Because I was being a bit dismissive what people do that. But I absolutely get what you're saying because I'm an interior designer and I'm not posting any photos of my own interior because mm. A, I'm a private person. I'm super extroverted, but that's my private home. Like I'm doing design all the time. So I don't want to share this. And then... I too feel that shame because when I then take that photo and I get my iPad out or my phone Mm -hmm. or the real camera, I'm realizing, oh, here it's dusty there. I had to have the flower arranged. Can I have the vase empty? Should I get like, I totally get because that pressure is building up in me as well. Yeah. But I wanted to circle a bit back to something that you said earlier about your own childhood. Yeah. Because I noticed when I work with expats, it's... As I said, they've been very cool for a very long time until they have kids. Mm -hmm. I noticed that a lot of people come to me, it's A, when they finally realize they're going to stay in this country, they're not just sitting on pack bags and they might be leaving. Mm. 
And they know that because they have kids and their kids have come out of those first years of, I always call them sticky finger years. So up starting from five, six years old, when you can say, okay, no food on the couch. We just eat in the kitchen when they can follow mm -hmm. basic rules is that they realize there is something about their own story, about their own culture that they want to share. And for so long, it seemed to me like shame is what makes you want to forget where you come from. But then you have kids and you are an expat. So in my example, I had a client, she's from New York. Her husband is German or Swiss German, but they live in Geneva, which is the French part. And she realized, okay, now that I have kids and they are out of the sticky finger years, mm -hmm. there is something I want them to feel that I felt back at home in the US, the spaciousness of everything being slightly bigger and just having this, mm. you know, this feeling of having big things around you and being okay with that. And I got that. So most of the times, once we have kids, we go back to this feeling of belonging to our own history and then realize not everything is bad because mm -hmm. we left our home for a reason. We wanted to experience something else. We wanted to be somebody else. And then it's this circling back of, wait, there still was something good about all the things that I left behind. And it's coming back to the question of having roots mm -hmm. and being an uprooted person, but then wanting to settle new roots, but not in the same way as the locals do. Because there is, I did another podcast interview with somebody and she called it not having a claim on the culture, that she's mm -hmm. really struggling being from one culture, having parents from another culture and living in a third culture and not knowing how can I claim this? Like, I don't even know. I know who I am, but how can I transmit that? And I, I then told her, it's not about the claim on having one culture. It's the claim on having your own personal history and mm -hmm. making it about the mix. Mm -hmm. How can we help people connect to their roots or find that good mix of you can leave certain things of your history behind mm -hmm. the shaming, blaming part. And how can we separate that and then filter out the good? I think for a lot of us are, so our brain, though incredibly complex, is also very simple when it comes to our shame response in our brain because it functions in a very similar way to how our fear response does. And so fear basically looks to say everything is all or nothing, black or white, yes or no, good or bad, and safe or unsafe. So for example, when you're a really little kid and you learn that sharks exist in big bodies of water, well, you haven't yet been able to differentiate between a lake, an ocean, a pond, a swimming pool. And so if you're like me, then you thought, okay, well, if sharks are in big bodies of water and you go to a big pool and there's this deep bend of the pool and you open your eyes underwater and all you see is dark blue, there's got to be a shark in there. And over time, you start to learn, okay, wait, there's nuances. There's sharks are in oceans or sharks are in these places, but not every place. But your fear response initially is going to be to go again, all or nothing. You can't go in any body of water because there could be a shark. There's no safe water. Well, if you've had experiences growing up where your brain 
has kind of shut down or disconnected from these experiences or these times in your life because you've had immense shame or trauma or anything that has happened to you, think about it's changed the lens of view that maybe somebody else might be able to look more clearly at, but you can only see it through these red tinted lenses. Well, everything is going to look red the more you wear the red lenses. And so what you have to do is to make space to try to see things from more of a balanced perspective. And I think two things really come into play that people oftentimes either inadvertently find themselves doing or really actively kind of have to put the work into doing. And one is really this element of rewriting their narrative and thinking, so when we're younger, so much of our story is written for us. And I kind of talk about it. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. And so if Harry Potter's written in third person and we're seeing insight into all of the characters, imagine how different it would be if the whole story was written in the first person narrative from one of the characters' perspectives and we were in their head the whole time. Well, what we want to shift is thinking, how do you kind of take your claim and write the story from that first person narrative? And so understanding what's happened, what's played a role but kind of taking out the other narrators of your experience. And oftentimes those narrators are those shame enforcers or reinforcers. And while you're doing that, there's this concept and process of forgiveness that really goes through with that to help you feel like you can go back to these places without feeling so emotionally charged. And so if people do have really negative experiences associated with a place, a situation, a time in their life, their brain is going to try to protect them and shut that part out and to code it all as bad. Because again, there's sort of that oversimplification. And so to go back and find balance means almost sitting with those pieces that were hard, working past those pieces and not letting those those stories, those pieces, those people be the only writers of your story at that time. And so for example, I moved a lot when I was a kid. I think it was 13 times before I was in fifth grade or 11 times, I think. And I was constantly moving around. We didn't know it at the time, but my mom was struggling with bipolar disorder and eventually relapsed and really struggled with some pretty severe and persistent drug addiction. And so I moved to a lot of different schools. I was in different homes. Eventually, I was moving in with an aunt and uncle. I lived with my grandma. I sort of became this chameleon and knew how to fit in anywhere I went to minimize disruption and to just kind of assume some sense of belonging wherever I went. And when you do that and you move into different communities, cultures, countries, whatever it might be, you get really good at doing that. Well, I had to go back over time and really think about so much of my life had been disrupted and I lost a lot of myself and my positive experiences. There's still big chunks of my life I don't remember because of some of the trauma of what happened with my mom and being moved around. But over time, I can go back and I can make space to say what happened was not okay or maybe what she did was not okay. Even if I can make space and have empathy for someone struggling with a mental health issue or addiction and all of that, I can hold those things while also seeing other parts in my life now. But I can't see the good without the bad. And I can't sort of go back and see things and just try to go, oh, I'm going to avoid that room, and I'm, but I'm going to go look at everything else. And so I think for people to go back and be able to 
detach what it means about them. Because for so long, I think when you've had negative experiences, somehow you've become written as the problem in your story, or there's something about you. And that's where shame gets power. And for me, it was going back and I had so much shame about why why didn't my my belief used to be why didn't my mom choose me and why did my family not want to keep me around and why did i never seem to fit in and i was never good enough and but that wasn't the only view of the story and so if i could shift that and look at more of a balanced perspective of what hurt and what was painful but also what are other things that were in my life who were other people that were consistent or how did I feel connected? I could hold both. And now I can allow my history to be a part of my future. And the other thing I think that's really interesting is I think kids give people permission to go back to and to kind of think about these things. And we oftentimes, if someone is a parent or a caregiver, we we almost feel like they're deserving of that. Like they're worth the effort and the work and the the drive to do all of these things, but we didn't assume that we were ourselves. And so I think there's nothing inherently that we need to change about that. But when that invitation comes up, kind of seeing there's a reason that we want to give our kids a more complete picture and have them understand and establish that sense of roots. And sometimes it's because we didn't have them. Sometimes it's because some of those roots and those things that we had in our life were actually really good and we don't want to lose them. But just kind of, I guess in my own journey, it was making space to process all of that and to sit with and to feel anger and to feel sadness and to feel incredibly lonely. And as though... I was resentful of a lot of the things that happened, but then find forgiveness for those people and those situations and for myself and not putting blame on me or other people, but saying what happened happened and letting go of or kind of untethering myself from those emotions and letting it be more of a balanced state that now I can carry into my life and my role in the future. I think it's amazing because I have a very, very similar story like you, also moving around. And you made what what was hardest for you, you made your job. That's what you talk about mm. now. Mm-hmm. And I have a very, very similar moving around. And my mental survival depended on me being welcome in other people's homes. Mm. And sometimes I remember being friends with people that I didn't even like. Yeah. But I like their parents. Yep. They had such nice parents. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God. And I loved hanging out with those parents. And I became even later in my teenage and university years known as the person when we would go partying somewhere and other people's parents would ask like, who are you going with? When will you be back? And they had all these questions. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, oh, mom, Nicole is coming with us. And the parents like, okay, then it's okay. Then you can go. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew how to make the parents feel safe about me. And I would always deliver their kids back safe and sound. I'd be the one who's not getting drunk. I'm Mm -hmm. the one who's bringing everybody home. I'm the last in the cab. I'm making sure we're leaving together. And parents knew that. It's so funny because I remember the most horrible questions of being asked as a kid was when you're at somebody's home and 
I was being the good kid that every parent loved to have mm-hmm. home. And then I had my friend who wasn't really my friend coming home and being surprised that I'm in their home. <laughs> and they asked me that question. It's like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Don't you have your own home to go to? Mm-hmm. And I'd be speechless and not knowing, like, actually, I don't. I have this house where I can sleep, but it's triggering me now. It's like not, not knowing what to respond. It's a house. It's a place to sleep, but it's not a place of value or of worth. It's not where I want to be. And that has become my mission mm-hmm. to make homes more about what is defining worth and defining value and homes made around a person Mm-hmm. rather than the person being made inside the home, like this branding exercise of being Instagram worthy or who cares. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, that feeling and you know, you know what it felt like for you to feel that sense of security and belonging. I, I did the exact same thing. I would, I stayed in a relationship for, I think seven years, maybe almost eight years because of what his family, the security I had with having family around because my mom was in and out of jail and she was still struggling with substance use. She hadn't yet been diagnosed and getting the mental health treatment she needed. She was a single parent and I was an only child. So it was just the two of us. And then when I moved Mm. to my aunt and uncle's house, and then eventually I was kicked out of there and sent to my grandma's house. And that was great, but even like she couldn't even be my legal guardian. So my guardianship was changing. I never, I never felt like I had these roots in my home in the same way anymore. And I sort of stayed in this relationship because it felt like I think on one hand, I didn't necessarily feel like I deserved true love in a very deep way. But in the second hand, it was like, you have a family that all sits down and has dinner together. And you on Sundays, your mom goes to the grocery store and she gets you know, hot ham sandwiches and and these things and everybody eats lunch together and then you go sit outside. And I had never had that in any way that felt so complete. And it was this feeling like, yeah, like you'll almost sacrifice having good friendships or having the relationships that matter at first just to get that feeling for a second that you you think you're supposed to have and just feels so good. And I think it makes total sense now why you're in this space where you talk about a home and a home worth having in the sense of how do you create that feeling for the individual in their home or somebody else walking through the door of their home that might need that same thing that you did as a kid or might need that sense of just relief that I know. And and I don't know if that's why I used to set up homes the way that I did too, but this feeling of we're all sort of chasing that sense of not even necessarily roots in the beginning. It's just the feeling like the rug's not going to be pulled out from under us. And whenever we get that sense of security, we're going to do whatever we can to uphold it and make it so that we, we can keep it. Yeah. So as I said, it led me to having a business called A Home Worth Having. Mm-hmm. And it led you to have a business that is called Adversity Rising. Mm-hmm. And I have to say at the beginning when I saw that... I was very taken by the branding and it's a very fresh side. I think it's very clear and minimalist and the way you present yourself, I was like, yeah, she's a cool chick. I want to talk to her. (laughs) But then thinking about it, I had a hard time understanding what the name meant. Mm -hmm. And for me, I came to the conclusion because 
you're talking about resilience and shame and belonging and the narrative that we construct around ourselves. I had problems understanding why adversity rising, but Mm -hmm. I thought then later of it, like tides rising, wind rising, and then still being able to be that lighthouse Mm -hmm. that's still standing there. Is is that, that's the picture that I then got. Is that what it's about? Yeah, essentially. So the, when I was in high school, I was inducted into the it's called the national honor society and basically it's you have to do acts of service and get certain grades and you can apply to be a part of this i i don't even really know what it was honestly i think it's another thing that just sort of makes you feel good uh it looked good on a college application but i remember i was elected to be the president and what my role was was to help kind of guide the school but particularly our chapter of the national honor society to thinking about how we can make change and how we can lead for our classmates, for our community. And when you get elected, you have a teacher that comes in and they become your sponsor. And so you have this, we have this big banquet, you're inducted into this organization. And I had my teacher, Mrs. Vote, was my sponsor. And she read this talk or this speech that she had written about me and why she thought I was the best fit for this role and to be a part of this organization. And she brought up this quote from the Disney movie Milan that said, a flower that blooms amidst adversity is the most rare and beautiful of all. And I remember just sort of hearing that quote. And I had seen Disney movies. I grew up watching Disney movies. I loved them now as an adult. And you kind of realize a lot of the ways that they missed the mark, or maybe were a little bit, had a lot of internalized bias. I have a slightly different view, but Still, for all intents and purposes, I liked them. And that quote stuck with me for a really long time. And I remember in college one night, I was reflecting on my mom had actually just gone into the hospital with some severe suicidality. And I was dealing with some other stuff going on and trying to complete things at school and trying to do everything I needed to do. And suddenly, I was thinking about that movie and that quote and this element of adversity and being able to bloom within that and to come out of your trauma and to make space and really particularly thinking about not running from it, but this idea of blooming within it. It's that like blossom where you're planted or bloom where you're planted, but in a much deeper meaning. And I suddenly, it was like a lightning bolt, this term adversity rising and rising out of and growing within it came to me. And I remember I wrote it down and I said, someday I'm going to have a business called Adversity Rising. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just officially launched that about a year ago. And so it's what, 10, 12 years later, I was holding on to that name. I knew I wanted it. And at the right time, it would kind of show up. And now I'm able to see it really is about me using my voice and my experiences to help people rise up through their adversity and to bloom within that and to see their worth and value no matter what their story is. Right. So tell us a little bit, how do we work with people? Um, It says artist, speaker, and therapist on your website. Mm -hmm. And you have this really cool list that I was like, oh, I want to talk about all about (laughs) all of the topics that you have on your little list. Mm -hmm. And then we could have like seven episodes (laughs) just about that. (laughs) But how can people work with you? How is your preferred method of helping people? So I 
for a really long time, I kind of had my art side of things, my speaking, my workshops, my therapy realm, all kind of tied in together. And what happened last year is I kind of broke off all of these different factors so that they could be connected, but independent. And so my art business now is under kind of creative. And so that is a place where I go and people can explore art with me. But I wanted it broken off so that it was also something that was separate where I got to continue doing my art in my own form of healing versus Mm -hmm. it really always being connected about the same message and brand. And it also kind of gave me space where I do a lot of work on sustainability and helping the environment. So I was able to take that in a different way and lean into this concept again of adversity, but through a different lens. And then my therapy practice, I separated out so that there was a lot of ways where people wanted to work with me in these capacities and go really, really deep. And that's not always where I wanted to touch and affect change. And so Adversity Rising really became this place where now I think about the way of connecting to people on a more global level and on a more, I think, introductory is not the right word, but on a more common ground place because not everybody needs therapy, nor is everybody that might want therapy or need therapy going to come into the therapy room. So now through my platform with Adversity Rising, I think the main way I've seen people engaging with me and engaging with the work I do is through a membership base that I have. So people can join the Adversity Rising members portal and they get access to hundreds of documents that I've created on topics like shame. So they can watch a two-hour webinar that invites them to do these deeper dive reflections. They can go into a section on values and clarity and start thinking about their how they're investing their time, their money, their energy, in ways that does or doesn't serve them or even rethinking their self-care or their routines for their daily life. And we have monthly calls where members can join and we have these open discussions and forums and there are other platforms for engagement. And that's really, I think, the bulk of where people are working with me now because people were all across the world and we're especially in isolation with COVID, not necessarily able to go out. And a lot of what I did in the beginning was you'd come attend a workshop with me or you'd do all these things in person. Well, that's not really working, not only for the people around me in Portland, but for the people across the world I want to help. And so most people really are finding that to be beneficial. I also run a lot of different workshops online. Again, I have these webinars and the course that I'm currently running that I'm really excited about is called Level Up. And it's a 10-week assertive communication course that really talks to people about working through and past their shame and finding their voice. And so I talk about how to make space for you to be seen and heard while also making space for others. So that again, kind of when we talked about that being reactive or being tied to others' emotions, we can detach from that and let our voices be heard and seen and validated. And so that's another really cool place that I found as well. And so what I like to tell people is that I help on the individual level. I do a lot of one-on-one coaching. I have these workshops. I have these membership portals. Knowing what's right and what's best for you isn't always a decision that you can make independently. And so I think the best way for people, if they're looking for support, if they're looking for something is to reach out to me, whether that's on social media, through my website, emailing me and scheduling a call where we can talk about some of these things. Because 
I might also not be the right fit for them. And I don't want to pretend I am just because I have something I could sell. That's not helpful for anyone. Mm. So yes, giving them an understanding of what I do and how it might work, but also knowing there are so many other platforms and giving people space to explore that so that again, they're not choosing this because they think I know what I'm talking about and I'm leading them, but they're choosing what's right for them. Right. So there's always a little set of questions that I like to ask all my interviewees, knowing now how intentional you are with what you do and creating this website and how to organize your work for yourself and for your clients. Is there something standing in that position where you are right now that is absolutely clear to you that others maybe don't see? when it comes to shame and when it comes to working through your issues and building that deeper sense of belonging. I think the biggest thing that I have learned and that I really like to bring into the space is, so when I was in grad school, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not a therapist should disclose anything about themselves. And I think there's a balance between sharing too much and making it about you versus your client or your patient, but also realizing that we relate and connect as humans. And I cannot put myself out there to pretend. And I see this with therapists. I see this with a lot of people that work in the same field as me, where they're putting themselves out there as the expert on something versus creating this belief in other people that they're the expert on their own lives. And my job is to help bring that out and to invite that deeper dive and work and support them rather than lift them up or empower them because they already have the power inside. And so when I think about shame and when I think about what I've started to see and how I respond now is I think the most effective way I can show up for people is to use self-disclosure, to model my own bouts of shame that still come up and how I'm working and walking through it because I see the biggest response to and the biggest treatment, quote unquote, for shame is more light. And light meaning visibility through conversation, through reflection, whatever it is, but bringing it to the surface versus letting it sort of linger in the background. And I think too many people have this feeling of, I can't feel this feeling, I can't do this thing, or I'm never going to get past it. I'm never going to be able to work through it. But I can see that that's the only way through. And by modeling my own experience and work to other people and kind of inviting that conversation and being a human that still has some expertness, I think I can create more safety for other people to see they can learn what I've learned, but then apply it to their own lives because they truly are the experts on their own lives. I absolutely agree. And it's coming back to that. Don't be ashamed of shame, right. of feeling shame. Right. Because yeah, I, for the longest time, I mean, once my upbringing was, you don't talk to mental health experts because mm-hmm. people will mm-hmm. think you're crazy. And then I could not, I could not comprehend how somebody with a certain degree, I found it so weird because when you work with therapists, you can't see their results. They can't just give you a reference. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So an architect can show me what he's done. Whatever he's constructed is now a monument to his work. Mm-hmm. And then with therapists, it, it doesn't work like that. Right. Okay, so do I even like you? Would I respect you for the person that you are and for the life that you're living that you are giving advice on? Wait, what? <laughs> right, right. So tell us if you feel like it. When things get too much for you, when you become uncertain or you feel destabilized, what is it that you do to help yourself back on track? 
I think the biggest thing from me that I found is to just start talking without the expectation I need to solve. So really thinking that when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling I have certain kind of yellow flags that I can pick up for myself now, realizing if I start to try to add more into my life, if I get focused on okay, I'm going to be doing this, this, and this, or I get kind of this almost heightened anxiety that shows up or this pressured feeling, or when I start to feel like I need to keep going and pretend like everything is fine. That's usually, and I've noticed this even right now with feeling like my husband's working, he's an emergency medicine physician. So he's in the hospital a lot. He needs his sleep. He needs to be doing things, obviously in the midst of COVID, incredibly important. Well, I was, I think, carrying some new activation of shame of feeling like, I wasn't doing enough. Things weren't okay because he was helping and all these other things at night. So I was just not waking him up, not having him help with stuff. And then feeling like I had to pretend like I had energy, I had enough sleep, everything was fine. And I was slowly kind of imploding. And so when I recognize this sort of need to use, and I think it goes back to my favorite swear word, right? When I use that word, I'm fine. Or when I feel this pressure to do more or to have to kind of out compete my shame, Just making space to name it, to say it out loud, but not ask myself to be able to do anything with it right away. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to solve it. I can just hold it for a minute because that validation of just the feeling and what's going on for me over time just kind of loosens the pressure or lessens the pressure in general. And then eventually I can come back to that place of resetting and thinking, okay, Now that I've named that, that makes total sense. I feel that way. That is completely justified. And what do I want to do with it so that it doesn't stop me from being able to do what I want to do? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I grew up in a very Catholic house. And and as a kid, I had this... I found there's something really wrong with the idea of praying. Because Mm. the way it was conveyed to me is something's wrong, you go down on your knee and you ask God to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I was as a kid so attracted. I finally wanted to become an adult and I wanted to be mature and do my own decisions. And then in, in this church context, you always stay the child. You always ask God. You never become of maturity. Like, when is God giving you this mm-hmm. And so this whole praying thing, I was rejecting it. I was totally like, nah, I'm not going to do this. And I didn't know how. And it felt like it's just wrong. Like, why? If I can fix it by myself, why would I ask somebody else? Right. And then I heard somewhere that in the Jewish religion, they have two different words for praying. And don't ask me what they're pronounced because I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) But there is one that is, in fact, what I just described is asking for help and asking to being relieved. Mm -hmm. And then there is the other meaning, the other word, which means to look within yourself Mm -hmm. and then to be able to articulate articulate it and then you go and pray and you tell somebody about it and it makes so much more sense because sometimes when you are in the feeling of lack and in the feeling of I can't do this I need help and you are in the emotion and the way we think and feel is not with words it's this mumbo jumble of emotions and pictures and associations and through going and talking to somebody and that can be god or that can be a priest or that can be a friend or that Mm -hmm. can be a parent or that can be a husband but making cohesive sentences and hearing yourself 
your doubt, your worry, your anxiety. And making sense of that, it levels you down. It brings you down to the understanding, wait, there is something to it. Mm -hmm. Wait, I've been just not been able to hold that physical feeling. And that's what's escalating my emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing I remind myself and remind people every day is that we have this belief, especially depending on the culture you grew up in. But if you grew up in this very individualistic culture and this belief like you need to be able to handle and and function independently, it can almost feel like I, I feel that same way where I don't want to kind of give up the control or sometimes I don't practice any religion right now, but I grew up in that space and had this same sort of feeling of but I'm still the one that's having to do the work. And so it felt like if I was just saying out loud, like I couldn't do it, or I was leaning into somebody else, it was me saying I was weak and not understanding that it's whether it's somebody believes it's handing it over to God or whatever higher power they believe in, or in my case, feeling like I need to turn it over to somebody else to hold it with me. There is so much more power in that because again, when we hold things ourselves, that silence that's created, that bottle of pressure that's built up is actually us losing ourselves to our shame. And so by bringing and inviting somebody else in, it doesn't mean they're taking over or that we can't do it. That's something that I used to always think is like, well, that means that I'm I'm failing. I'm weak. I'm not good enough. But realizing, no, it's it's me bringing light to something so that I can actually make space because at the end of it, I still have to do the work. I'm still the one that's doing it. I'm just making space so that the work can be done in a way that's helpful. Right. So I have one more question for you. Yeah. Speaking about your business, where do you want to be with that in 10 years? And if we were asking you to franchise your business and become Mm -hmm. your franchise in Switzerland, adversity rising Switzerland or wherever we are in the world, in other cities. What is the thing that we could do? What is the thing you would want us to focus on doing in order to bring this message, this movement, this education forward? I think the thing that I really want to do is my ideal would be if I could work to put myself out of business as a therapist, because we're preventing and solving all of these things before it becomes problematic. That would be the dream goal. But we know that's not going to be the case because there's always going to be mental health struggles. There's always going to be shame. There's always going to be trauma. So what my ultimate goal is to create this community of people that's all starting ripples in their area. Other people that are armed with this information, other people that are leading these things. And I like to really consider if you're working with somebody or you're there are a lot of people that speak on similar topics to me that really they're constantly promoting their new product or their new service. And I think if you're always hooked to somebody else, then somebody else is leading your life. And so what I really want to do is to constantly create new opportunities for people to again, become feel like they are the experts and lean into that expertness and feel like they have the tools to lead within themselves and to create that so that they can start that ripple in someone else. They can share the tools. They can do these things. Because I think for a long time, my shame told me that I had to be famous. I had to be the one that everybody knew about. I had to be celebrated in these ways because that's the only way I'm doing something worthwhile. And over time, and the more I've worked through my shame, the more I see... 
I don't need to be famous. I don't need to be celebrated for all of these things. In fact, I don't even want to be. What I want is to create a community where people don't even necessarily know where it came from, but we're all just transmitting these messages and information because it's getting infused into the culture. It's getting fused into the community and the individuals that are living within it so that that way it's less about needing to come and work with me and getting all these things and having the kind of oversight, but more just cultural changes that are happening and I can create and and have a hand in that ripple. Right. What do you do with that? (laughs) Because I'm hearing you and I'm thinking, I'm a complete language buff, right? So I'm currently learning my sixth language. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, which is Swedish because I've always been fascinated with the with the Swedes and why they so early on had gender equality and you know I'm a designer so there's the thing about Scandinavian design. I'm so attracted to that and so I'm learning language and right. Now that I'm learning language, oh now I know how it works. I'm like, the way they already infuse this gender equality in their language and they don't think about it. I have to consciously learn it. And I'm aware of this because it's so different than German works or English works or any other language that I know. So no wonder they don't make the difference. All right. Mm-hmm. Like, so if we could change basically every country's language to work like that, but that's obviously not possible. But that's something I like to understand. And how can we then include that and make it a thing wherever you are? Yeah, I think you're right. There's the element of language and the element of how we communicate and what we say, and that has an effect and that matters. And then there's that sort of simultaneous weaving of empathy and compassion and kindness and love extend deeper than those things. And so I don't really know. Yeah. I think there's obviously this inherent privilege that I have in the English language and having such almost sometimes I think too many words that can describe different things. And so I can imagine what that would look like to within this culture and within cultures or subcultures that I've worked with within the United States or within other cultures outside of the US that have sort of overlap or shared language principles. So I think there probably would be some elements of different barriers that would be affected by that. And also thinking about cultural and and different community shame stories associated with whether it's the country you grew up in or the community or the part of that country or whatever that might be. And so I think it's this element instead of how do we separate from what we say to how we say it and the feeling we can invoke in the way we're showing up for other people. And I think that, again, is so much more complex than just what I'm saying right now that would be so different depending on who you are, where you live, what you're looking for. But it's an invitation for all of us to consider not so much, again, the what, but the how and the why, and how do we bring that into those communication aspects overall. Yeah, it's the openness to just experience life differently. Right. And I think there's that piece of thinking, it's not always necessarily that we can relate as much as we can hold space for everyone. And so, again, realizing like I treat one of my primary focus areas as a therapist is treating people with eating disorders. Well, sometimes having shared experiences can also be a downfall because you think you can over-relate and you can sometimes fill in your own experience with other people's and you don't leave as much space to understand their story. And so sometimes I actually think people that don't 
have a shared experience can even be better at making space to feel like you are being heard because they're not putting their own interpretation on it in the same way. Now, obviously, that depends on who you're talking to, what that experience is. But I think it's, again, it comes past that thinking it's not about exactly what we share in that story, but how we can connect to the emotion underneath. You know, I've never experienced certain things in life, but I can connect to the feeling of loneliness that someone might talk about, or I can make sense of what that would be. But I, I'm only going to create more of that sense of silencing of someone else if I put my interpretation on it. So instead it's going, Oh, okay, well, what does that mean for you? And what does that look like? And how do I show up for you? And I think the more we do that, the more we again, connect overall. Yeah, because it's like you said, I had this expat experience and we have a very similar background story as it turns out, but you don't need to be an expat to feel like a displaced person. Exactly. And how will you learn to belong and stay in one place and have those roots if all you know is constant running and constant changing and constant changing place and Mm -hmm. your partner is the same? So sometimes you have to have that other person who's just giving you that space to be you, but at the same time resisting and giving you something to resist too. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Kira, thank you so much. I feel like we could go on and go on. We could just talk tomorrow again (laughs) and talk about another topic. But this has been going on for quite a while. And you need to go back to your kid. I need to go back to my kids. (laughs) Thank you so much for everything you shared. Oh, thank you. People find you you online under adversityrising.com. And is it on all the platforms? What platforms are you on? Yeah, on Facebook and Instagram, they can find me at Adversity Rising. So they can just go in and search that. They'll find me there. I'm posting there and following me there. And that's the best way to direct message me if you want to connect with me over social media. But otherwise, going to my website is going to be your best bet. Yeah. And then as you said, don't hesitate to contact you personally to explore the topics on how to work with you. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a contact page on my website. It sends an email directly to me. So I see those. I can connect with people. I'm happy to set up discovery calls to go over these things. Again, it's not about sales. It's about helping make sure we figure out the best way to support you. And if I can be an entry point for that, regardless of if we end up working together or not, I definitely want to do that. And I will also be sending you some information. So it'll be in the show notes and people can see it later on. But I will, anyone that's listening to this, I'm going to give them a free code so that they can have a month membership for free if they want to check it out and just see if there are resources that could be beneficial for them. So it actually works out to be about six weeks free because I have a two-week trial built in already in general. So people will get just about two months free that they can kind of play around, engage with the calls, be a part of whatever feels good for them. Well, thank you so much for that. I will definitely link this all up. Again, thank you so much for being available. Thank you for the whole process already working with you was so amazing. It was not me asking you and then delivering you a question. It was really this co-creation process. I really appreciated that you've been available now. You have been so open and I definitely appreciate when I get the background story of a person. It's just reassuring and it's just knowing that if you can be so open, I can be so open. 
Oh, I'm so glad that that's how you felt. And it was such a great process working together. And again, that element of us taking our two different professions and personal stories and blending them in a way that we can see connection and what we're doing even in such different professional sectors and how it's all really about connecting and creating that space for people. Absolutely. Thank you, Kira. Friend, what's your verdict? All I can say is, wow. Usually I finish my episodes with my main takeaway on the one thing my guest has taught me. But this time I have more nuggets of wisdom than I can count. And I could make another episode just on those. So let me take a step back away from the actual content Kira shared with us. If you asked me what my main takeaway, my main insight is, it would be this. We need to have a conversation about shame. And we need to not be ashamed about talking about shame or carrying shame within us. Kira established trust in me by being willing to share her shame story and what consequences it had on her life, and it gave me permission to share mine. It turns out that the two of us faced very similar childhood adversity, and that's what we bonded over. And then we got to talk about how differently it actually manifested in our lives within our own behavior. Now, I have all these fantastic reasons and explanations on why I named my business the way I did. A home worth having. It's because my design skills are merely a way of giving my mission shape. What I realized, though, in this conversation with Kira is that I'm bound to this particular arrangement of words due to one key shame experience. As a kid, I had a place to sleep and nice things to play with, but I did not feel like I had a home worth having coming actually home to. So I said it during the recording and I said it again. Do not be ashamed of carrying shame. We all do. And if you can detach enough from the experience to talk and trust others with it, because you have learned to trust yourself and not let the people that are your shame reinforces write your story for you, then you can create new bonds of belonging. So please, if you found value in this episode, share it. Share it on your social media openly or share it in a private message with the one person you believe needs to hear this. And if you found value in this, but do not feel confident enough sharing it, just swipe in your app of preference and give it a five-star review. You don't need to write anything in the comment if you don't feel like it. But those five stars do not just brighten my day. They help getting found in this sea of podcasts. And it helps that this content is being found easier by the person who is looking for it and needing to hear it. And if you want to contact Kira, she's adversityrising.com and carries the handle adversityrising on all platforms. And for you as a, a Home Worth Having podcast listener, she's offering something special. If you want to learn from Kira through her program, you can sign up on her website to the Adversity Rising membership portal. Inside, you will find over a hundred different resources, all crafted and or carefully curated by Kira to give you insight on a variety of topics, including shame, but not limited to shame. So to access the free month, simply go to her website, click on sign up slash logging and enter the discount code three months. 
F-R-E-E-M-O-N-T-H. Until next week, my friend, I remain your humble designer friend, Nicole. Au revoir et à bientôt.